0: Merry Christmas to everyone. Um, Yeah, as I've been meditating on this sermon uh, this week, um, of course, thinking about the season we're in, um, and just preparing to deliver this particular text, which Ken just sang through, actually, it's, it's Matthew 1, it's the first half of, first kind of section of Matthew chapter 1, if you want to turn to it, you can. Uh, but as I've been thinking about this, and thinking about the season, and thinking about uh, this sermon, I've been thinking in particular about one specific line from a Christmas hymn, a Christmas carol, which we actually sung at the Christmas Eve service, if you were there. Um, and that's the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and that's the particular line, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Right? It's a familiar line, right? The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. But it's actually really... um It's like a lot of familiar lines. We sing it so much, but you don't really stop and think about what it's saying. It's actually like really a striking bold thing. It's saying that the hopes, our hopes and our fears, all of them from all the years, from all of time, are being met in what we believe happened on Christmas morning, which is obviously the birth of Christ. I mean, that's, that's pretty staggering, actually, to say that that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. So I just want to start before we get into the text. uh, I want to ask you if you can think of, um, just internally reflect for a second, can you think of something in your own life that you've anticipated greatly with both hope and fear kind of mixed together? Could be a lot of things, personal events, family-related things, job-related things. Um, Yeah, who knows? Um... You hope for it and you have some fear wrapped around it at the same time. It's like great anticipation comes with both of those uh, experiences, I think. Well, I would submit that if you can kind of access the emotion of that, that hope and that fear, I would submit that at least this is where my mind has been going as I've been thinking this week. I think that on some level, if, if all of us were to get really honest with ourselves or really, really honest with each other in a vulnerable moment, I think all of us probably feel that same mix of hope and fear um, about the notion that there really is a God who is loving and sovereign and powerful and merciful and in control of history. Um, I think we probably would be, if we were honest, we'd probably say we really hope that's true, but we're really scared that that's not true. (laughs) Um, And so in that way, I think that hope and fear uh, kind of mingle In a really interesting, interesting way, because dare dare we hope that something that audacious is actually true? Like, is that something we dare hope for? And isn't it kind of scary to hope for something that big? Um, Because what if our hope is not in the right place, right? And I would say, I think that that hymn, that line from that hymn, the the hopes and fears of all the years I met in the night, um, it's proclaiming that actually we can rest in the belief that that is true about God because of Christmas morning. Um, we can rest in the belief in what we proclaim in that hymn that all of the hopes and fears of humanity, the hopes and fears of even all of creation. I mean, that's what scripture says in the new Testament, especially that all of creation is kind of groaning for the incarnation of Christ, right. And the salvation that that brings um, that all of that has somehow been answered in the birth of this baby in this kind of corner of the world. Um, and that actually the birth of the child of Jesus is that is what God's love and God's power and God's salvation look like in a human life. And it's a momentous thing about history. That's what we believe about Christmas. And that's what I want to unpack to this morning. I just wanted to start there um, before we get into this list of names, um, because it's a pretty boring list of names if you just read it. All <laughs> uh, right. As Ken kind of alluded to with this joke a minute ago. Um, but uh this is basically – so this is going to be basically a Christmas sermon, but it's going to be maybe a little different because uh, I've heard a lot of Christmas sermons over years, and a lot of them, they may focus on one aspect of the Christmas story. They may focus on some of the characters like Joseph or Mary or the wise men or the shepherds, um, and those are all meaningful in different ways. But today I'm really going to focus on the big scope of God's plan through history and how that culminates on Christmas morning, like the the big zoomed out look at what Christmas means um, about the world and about God um, and that how God's what I believe is that God's plan to save humans, to save us and to save the world took a decisive step forward on Christmas morning in a really powerful and amazing way when Jesus was born. Um, so that's what today's about. Um, through Advent leading up to today and leading up to Christmas, we've been spending time in Malachi. So if you've been around, you'll know you, it's not a surprise to you. Malachi is the final document in the what we know as the Old Testament. Um Malachi was a prophet who was pointing forward to a coming messenger, who was pointing forward to the day in which God, God's own self, God himself, would show up in the temple um, to straighten everything out, to fix everything that was wrong this is what Malachi was pointing forward to. Like Malachi is pointing to what's wrong and saying, but God's messenger is coming and God himself is coming. And so that, that like pointing forward creates kind of a really exciting anticipation. I think it's like you read that and you think, Oh man, what's this going to look like? Like how is it, when's this going to happen? Um, and so you read Malachi and you build up, if you're, if you're engaging it, you're building up this anticipation and then you turn the page to the new Testament and then you slam into this list, <laughs> this list of obscure names and generations. Right. Um, so it's a very, um, it can be very hard to read. Uh, it can be very brutal to read. Um, many well-intended efforts to read big sections of scripture, um, stall out on these lists of names, right? Um, so Matthew, but, but, but Matthew starts his gospel, his presentation of Jesus intentionally with this list of names. And I really believe there's something very powerful and important to learn from here, even if it's a little hard to kind of read on your own or seems a little boring or obscure at first. Um, so let me, um, let me pray for this next little bit of time, and then we'll, we'll dive into the names. Um, uh, Lord, I, um, again, it's already been prayed this morning, but I, I do thank you uh, for Zoom, such as it is, uh, imperfect and incomplete as it feels next to actually being together, Lord. I do thank you that it does enable us to connect in some way this morning. So I pray man, more than anything, I pray your Holy Spirit would enliven these words, um, that you would work through this technology to, um, enliven our hearts about what you did on Christmas morning and what that means about who you are and your love and your intentions for us and for your creation, um, your holy name. Amen. Um, so my goal here in this next little bit of time is to take what is one of the most boring passages of scripture and make it interesting. Um, because in in all honesty, and maybe it's just me, I'm a bit of a Bible history nerd, of course, but I actually, I actually do. I'm not just saying this. I actually do think it's really interesting. <laughs> I think it's actually really fascinating when you dig into it, when you start to see what these names point to and the stories they point back towards and the bigger story that these names combined start to tell. It's really actually amazing stuff. Um, and I think it's really hopeful. I think it's actually really inspiring and really deeply hopeful. So that's where we're going this morning because what I want to say at the outset, I'm going to kind of say the big picture here at for, at front, right at the front, and then we're going to talk about some names. But I think this genealogy, that, that's what this is. This is a genealogy. It's the lineage of, of, of Jesus, right? It's his ancestry going back to Abraham. And I think that this list of names, this genealogy of Jesus, it points to a few really big truths. One of them is that God has been radically committed to this rescue plan of salvation. God's been radically committed to that for millennia, for literally millennia, for generations upon generations. Um, and God's been committed to that. So that God's been committed to that over vast amounts of time, even though, and it's something I'm going to repeat a few times, even though the people who are named within this genealogy, the people whose names show up here, they had no idea what what God was doing through their own stories at the time. Right? That's a really striking thing to think about. The people who Matthew names as being part of who brought, how God brought Jesus into the world, those people had no idea what God was doing with their lives and their stories at the time that their stories were unfolding. But God has been, was radically committed to salvation through all of that over that whole time. Two, um, it also, so if it points to God's radical commitment over time, it also, too, points to God's, uh, the type of people that God uses to bring about God's plans and God's purposes. So God uses people of great courage, people who have been marginalized, people that most of us would overlook, people who make massive and shameful mistakes, um, and people who most of all, actually the common thread I would say is people who just simply trust in God despite their mistakes or despite their stories or despite whatever about their circumstances. People who trust in God, God uses that, um, that trust. God uses that faith. And I think that that's what this, this genealogy story tells. And so my hope is that as we see that come out through these list of names in this morning, I hope, I hope that our own hope, well, honestly, I hope that our own faith can be stirred by it. Seeing these people who have demonstrated faith through their stories and how God has used that to bring Jesus into the world. I hope that our own faith can be stirred up in the same way. Um, and that that's thinking about Christmas in this way, I'm hoping will inspire us to our own bold faith in our own lives. Um, even if, even if we're in confusing circumstances like a lot of the people in this list of names were. So let's get into the genealogy. Uh, enough of a windup. Um, so the genealogy, can it can really be read in three parts. Basically, there's kind of three sections that um, Matthew splits it into three sections of 14 g- generations. Um, and that structure in itself is, there's a lot you could say, even just about thinking about it in three different 14s. Uh, one commentator says that it's, Uh, it's six groups of seven. And so we're entering the seventh, seventh group, which is the group of completion. Another commentator thinks that, you know, the name David, uh, in Hebrew numerology, the name David equals the number 14. Um, so there's something Matthew's doing about these numbers of 14 pointing to David. There's, it's just, it's crazy stuff that is amazing when you start to dig into the history of it, but that's not what I want to focus on this morning. What I want to focus on this morning is the story and the names. And so, um, Matthew starts with Abraham. In verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and that's not a surprising place to start for the Jewish Messiah Jesus, right? Jesus was Jewish, and he descended directly from Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish people and Abraham is a hero of faith um he's so familiar to us right? if you grew up in church, he's so familiar right? but he's a hero of faith because he trusted God to leave his city to leave his surroundings um to leave his uh uh, place he grew up, um, his culture and to head for a land of promise that the promised land that he didn't know where it was or what was going to be in store for him there, but he still trusted God to head out towards it. And so this genealogy links Jesus directly to Abraham and Abraham's exercise of faith and trust in God right at the outset of the whole story. Jesus is a son directly of Abraham. Jesus comes directly out of God's promises to Abraham and Abraham's faith in response and his action in response to those promises. So it's not surprising. I don't think it's surprising that this genealogy starts with Abraham. Abraham again is the father of uh, father of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish people. But but if that's not surprising, I think that what comes right after this is actually very surprising, and that's in the next verse. And so Judah comes out of this line of Abraham, and then Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That by Tamar phrase is interesting. If you are a 1st or 2nd century Jewish rabbi or scholar of scriptures and you're reading this genealogy, this is where you might pass out uh from shock. Um because for a couple reasons. First, Tamar is a woman and this is simply not something that was done in these in this age was include names of women in these genealogies. It just simply wasn't done. So, the inclusion of a woman right here at the very front is very fascinating and surprising. Secondly, so she's a woman. Secondly, she's not Jewish. Most likely she's, we're almost certain she was Canaanite. So she's, she's a woman. She's not Jewish. Also, her story is not exactly very neat and tidy. Um, I don't want to, it deserves a sermon all on its own. It's from Genesis 38. If you want to look it up and reread it on your own. But, um, I think it's suffice it to say you could It could be something that's lifted out of something like Game of Thrones. I mean, it is like a, uh, it's not a nice, easy story. Um, So if every word here is intentional, if Matthew constructed this genealogy and every word of scripture is intentionally inspired there, then why is the name of Tamar here? If she, if it defies every cultural um, kind of expectation of the time and why did Matthew, why would Matthew be in, um, you know, inspired to include it when it would have been so easy and actually expected to gloss over the story of Tamar, just not include her name, right? Well, again, her story deserves a sermon all its own, which I'm not going to, I'm not going to even attempt to summarize or go into it. I, I will say that I think that what can be observed from Tamar's story is that you see a lot of things, but you see a woman in her story. You see a woman who has experienced significant marginalization and frankly, um, neglect, you could even maybe say abuse, Um, you see a woman who has experienced significant marginalization at the hands of powerful men in Israel, particularly Judah, uh, who is named in the genealogy. Judah was not living up to what Jewish law said he should have been doing in his treatment of Tamar, um, And yet, Tamar demonstrates remarkable courage and boldness in how she causes Judah to live up to God's law, actually. She causes Judah to live up to God's expectations in God's law and God's righteousness. And it's through those actions, again, read Genesis 38, it's through Tamar's actions and her boldness and her courage that she ends up, listen to this, she ends up bearing judah a son that gets included in the very lineage that god uses to bring jesus into the world so here we have a non-jewish really socially marginalized woman who demonstrates bold courage and a zeal for god's justice and god uses her to bring the jewish messiah into the world centuries later and matthew wants us to remember her story when we read the story of jesus it's fascinating Moving, it, moving forward, in verse 5, another surprise, actually twice over in the same verse. The line continues, as the song already lined out. And then it goes on to say, Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. By Rahab, another inclusion of a woman's name. And then Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. So in right back to back, you have two women named. And if we can't be 100% sure that Tamar was a Gentile, although she most likely was, a Can- like I said, a Canaanite, We know without any shadow of a doubt that both Rahab and Ruth were not Jewish. Rahab was from Jericho, and you can read Joshua 2. I'm just naming these references in case you want to go back and refresh yourselves on their stories. Uh, Rahab is from the city of Jericho, which is in Joshua 2. Her profession, she manages a a business, um, which is not exactly, I'm being a little I don't know, coy with my word use here. It's Her business is not exactly in line with Jewish law and morality, right? But nevertheless, she shows up in the story. And I got to say, a lot of people focus on Rahab's profession when they talk about her. But let's not forget that when, jo- when Joshua sends the Jewish spies into Jericho, they go to her establishment right away. So what is that saying about, you know, these men who go into the city, right? So that's another whole thing. Um, nevertheless, Rahab is not Jewish, similar to Tamar and Ruth. But nevertheless, she actually demonstrates, again, remarkable courage and faith in, in Israel's God in the, in her story. She's the woman, if you remember, who protects the Jewish spies in direct defiance of the king of Jericho when Joshua um, actually uh, brings down the city. And so her actions by protecting those Jewish spies, she becomes folded into God's story. And she's actually spared when the city is destroyed. And then also, similarly, to Tamar gets Bears a son and is included in this lineage, that brings Jesus into the world. Now Ruth, moving on, is also a Moab, Ruth is a Moabite, so it's another people group, not a Jewish person. And from the perspective of the Jews at the time, Ruth, the Moabites were not liked, not well liked, fairly despised. Honestly, looked down upon. Um, and her, she has an entire book to her uh, in the Old Testament, the Book of Ruth, which is a beautiful, amazing story, and how she meets Boaz and how she gets in. This, this picture is actually a depiction of her gleaning in the fields, uh, which is an important part of the story. The thing about this, right in, in two phrases back to back, we have by explicit naming, we have two more non-Jewish women, right, who experience varying levels of kind of social marginalization, whatever. Two more non-Jewish women. So again, why would Matthew include these names when it would be so easy and expected to skip over them, to gloss over their names? But maybe the better question than that is, what should this tell us about God and why God decided to include these women in this story? And how how does this reflect on God's character and how God works in the world and what that means for our lives today? I love reflecting on this. I love being inspired by this because we're just a few verses into the story, into the genealogy. And I hope you can sense, I hope you can sense what I was saying, how this points to actually really interesting and exciting stories. It seems like a boring list of names, but it's actually bound up in a really amazing story that unfolds over a vast length of time because these names, names like, and the the names of the men too, names like Boaz, names like uh, Abraham, um, all these names point back to events that happened in the life of Israel. They're like little little signposts that point back to, hey, remember this. Remember this person. Remember what they did. Remember how God worked in their life. And I want to repeat a couple observations that I kind of already stated. But this list already, just in a few verses in it, covers a massive amount of time. Uh, the first section of the genealogy here, from Abraham to David, covers about 750 years. About It's hard to date. Really precisely, but about 750 years, so I want to ask you, do you know do you know your family generational history 750 years back? Do you know 14, 14 generations back from you and what was going on in your family? No, most of us probably don't. I definitely don't. I think in our in our context today, in our culture and everything that's going on in the world, it's so easy to feel rushed. It's so easy to feel hurried and impatient in, in our time. But one thing that this shows us honestly this is and this is uh this is a wrestling match for some of us for me I think it's a wrestling match that God is okay to work over time God is okay to work over long periods of time God has an unhurriedness in the way that God works And the people in this in the people the, the Rahabs and the Ruths and the Boazes and all the others They did not know at the time that they were going to be included in this lineage of the Messiah and the Savior of the world literally centuries after their stories were done. And yet that is what was happening. That's what Matthew was saying. Like, when Rahab was acting, when Ruth was gleaning in those fields, her actions would get folded into God's story over time. And this gives me, man, this gives me a lot of hope because I want to start asking, and this turn the lens on ourselves for a second. Ask ourselves, what could God be doing right now that we're not aware of over time? What could, I, dare I say this, what could God be doing in our lives that might not unfold fully for another 750 years from now? Do we ever stop and even think about that possibility? Could I, could we, could Missio Day Church, could I, could you be included in that, something that unfolds over that length of time? And regardless of whether God works in 750 years or 50 years or tomorrow in specific ways, regardless of that, what would it be like? Let, let me ask you this. What would it be like to live every day with that perspective? What would it be like to live every day with, what, with the perspective of what, what does my story today have to do with something that God might be doing in 14 generations? Like, What a different way to live through the eyes of faith. Because it requires faith and trust. In the, it re, To live that way requires that you trust that God is active and that God cares and that God can do something with your story even if you don't see it, right? Even if you don't see it for 14 generations. So my prayer for myself, really, and for all of us as a, as a community, is, is to for God to give us faith to believe that you might be doing something like that right now. And then the other thing I want to say, and I'm going to go through the rest of genealogy really quickly, the other thing I want to say at this point here is that God's plan, and this is really important too, even though God was working through a specific people, it was always for all people. God was working through a specific people, the Jews, but it was always for all people. That's extremely clear on every, almost every page of the Old Testament. God's promises and covenants are always pushing out. And I think this is an important reason. This is why I'm emphasizing these, these women in particular. I think this is an important reason why names like Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were included in this list. Because it speaks to God's care for the foreigner, the unjustly treated, the oppressed, but and and the Gentile in the midst of the Jewish people. Next, uh, We're going to look... Uh, I think this is also an interesting... Um, to, to look ahead to even next week, uh, we're going to look at the story of the Gentile wise men that come to the birth, right? So Matthew has an extreme uh care for us seeing these stories of these non-jewish people respecting the jewish king um, but i think these names in this genealogy speak to god's care for these type of people and god's plan that these people would always be included from the foundations of the world as paul says in ephesians um but and even the possibility for those who will live like the rahabs who might be living in a way that we we might look askance at that and say though well, that's not a good law-abiding way to live even those people can be folded in included in what god is doing in the world so part two of the genealogy, that's part one. I'm spending the most time in part one. Parts two and three are going to be much quicker. Um, in verse six, we start into part two, which covers from King David, the great king of Israel, to Jeconiah who was uh, king at the time of the um, exile. So this section, the first section of genealogy covers about 750 years. This section covers about 400 years, so it's a bit sh- shorter. And it's probably the most tumultuous in terms of Israel's life as a nation, because it starts with King David, who is the great king, but it ends in their shame and their destruction and their exile. They get a, they get exiled to Babylon. They're oppressed under the Babylon uh, powers. Um, the temple is destroyed. It's it, it's a very very shameful path, p- period of Israel's history. And so just like it's not surprising to see Abraham show up here, it's also not surprising to see David show up here. David is the king, the great king. And when we think about Jesus being king, a lot of people are expecting another David, Davidic king, right? Um, And Matthew is intentionally structuring this so we see David threaded through the genealogy, right? But look again at verse 6. Look at these details. David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, another inclusion of another woman, And this is extremely fascinating on multiple levels because, and this, this, the, the picture that I have there is a depiction of when Nathan the prophet confronts David about this phase in his life. If you know the story, this is a, this is an allusion directly to when David slept with Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah. Uh, and in, Interestingly, Uriah is a Hittite. So Uriah is another non-Jewish name wrapped into this list. But Dave, this is David's greatest moral failing, at least as recorded in his story here. It's his greatest moral failing. He sleeps with someone who's not his wife, and then he arranges for her husband to be killed at the front lines of battle intentionally to kind of cover up what he did. It's just, it, it, it's ugly. Um it's a very and it's why I picked this picture because this shows it it kind of gets at David's shame when he is confronted by Nathan and he realizes the extent and the enormity of what he's done. And what I want to highlight here, you can read Psalm 51 if you want to read David's prayer of contrition about this event in his life. And you can read 2nd Samuel 11 to 12 if you want to read the story itself. But what I want to highlight here is that what is what is on the s- surface a mistaken, shameful, immoral mess of a situation? It's not wasted in God's plan. It's not wasted. It's actually redeemed, I guess you could say. And it's a Christian cliche. I know it's a Christian cliche to say that God can bring beauty out of messes and mistakes and shame and ugliness and brokenness. I know it's a cliche to say that. But man, it's right here on the page. It points us right back to that truth, and it is something I believe that God can and loves to do: bring beauty out of messes. Because God's own Son came out of David's greatest mistake. Think about that: the lineage of Jesus comes out of this mistake that David made, sleeping with someone who wasn't his wife. And think about this: this this really rocked me this week. God, this is hard to articulate. I want to say it like this, though. God is not ashamed of this being part of God's own story either. God is not ashamed of this mistake being a chapter in the, what, it, what it took to bring Jesus into the world. And so I want to say that your shame, my shame, our shame is not greater than what God can do with it. David's shame was significant around this. But our shame does not eclipse what God can do with, with these messes and mistakes. Even, though, even if it takes time, like I said a minute ago. So finally, we're going to go to part three here. I'm not going to read all the names. You already heard them in the song. Uh, The third section of the genealogy takes us through the destruction of Israel's temple. Like I said, the temple that Solomon built, by the way, um, they had a 70-year period of exile into Babylon. Then they were allowed to return to the promised land. They're allowed to rebuild the temple. These stories are um, uh, collected in books like Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuild the temple, they reestablish their religion at the temple and their practice. And this list, this last section of the genealogy, this last section of 14 covers that phase of their history. And this list is very obscure. Um, there are less well-known names here. Zerubbabel is probably the most well-known one, and he shows up in books like Ezra. But what I want to note, so you go through this list, this unbroken list is God's patient endurance and and faith to humans over this list that, that the line is still unbroken through all this tragedy, this exile, the destruction of the temple, and the return. It's it's unbroken. And yet, um, we get another woman named here at the end. And of course, it's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. Mary is, as many of you know, was probably teenage, probably 14, 15 years old. Can't be totally sure, but somewhere around that age is most likely... Probably very poor. The sacrifices she brought to the temple indicate that she was probably on the at least somewhat poorer end. Um, Yet she responded faithfully to what must have been the most terrifying and confusing invitation of her life, unexpected thing, when the angel shows up to her and says, you are going to bear God's son into the world. And how does she respond? She says, here I am, the servant of the Lord. May it be done with me according to your word. What a powerful, what a powerful response. I, w- I wish that was my on my lips so readily, that response. May it be done with me according to your word. Mary was willing to take on the uncertainty and the potential shame of being known as the woman who was pregnant, you know, before she and Joseph were technically married. Joseph was willing to stay committed to her despite the potential uncertainties and social costs of that. Um. Both of them displayed her incredible trust and faith in God a trust, in fact, similar to what Abraham displayed at the very beginning of the story when he stepped out of his home and walked towards the land of promise to a foreign country. And this then, well, I'll, I'll end here. This is how Matthew presents God's unfolding work through history to bring Jesus into the world. This is how God. This is how Matthew tells the story. I think it's amazing. This list of names is amazing. And the birth of Jesus, the culmination of this list of names, the birth of Jesus, what, what Christians and th- what theologians term the Incarnation, of God into human flesh, that really is the fulfillment of God's promises, the culmination of God's steady, patient, enduring, loving, merciful work with, hu- with a very fallen, very, very broken humanity. It's, it's the, the culmination of God's work with broken humans over 2000 years. And as Matthew's genealogy reveals, I think God brought this about and unfolded very unlikely people into it. Gentiles, people who broke their promises, people who made mistakes, people who misused their power, uh, people who demonstrated great courage, on the other hand, people who demonstrated great faith. Um, God uses people, in, in other words, God just uses people, wherever people are at. And I will say, to circle back to what I said at the beginning, Jesus, I really do believe Jesus is the answer, the response to all our hopes and fears, as the hymn says. Because the Incarnation is evidence of God's enduring faithfulness and love over vast amounts of time. It's evidence that God's faithfulness to us eclipses our own tendency to unfaithfulness back to him. God's faithfulness is stronger than our unfaithfulness. And I think it's evidence that even in the most confusing circumstances, things like... um, being socially marginalized in the case of Tamar, or seeing the temple destroyed, or being confronted with your great mistake in the case of David, um, being sent into exile in the case of Zerubabel or Jaconia, Even in the most confusing circumstances, things like a pandemic, right? Um, all the things our church is going through right now and has been through over the past two years. Even in the most confusing, unexpected circumstances, God really is still working. To risk saying another Christian cliché, God really is working. This ev- this genealogy is evidence of that, I think. God really does work in and through everything uh, that we can encounter, um, and God uses our trust and our faith in those circumstances. Even in the midst of shame or painful mistakes, things we regret, God still works. And the incarnation of Christ, the fulfillment of all of this, reveals, I think it reveals that we can fully cast our lot, cast our hopes, even our fears, cast our fears, cast our trust on a faithful God whose faithfulness has been decisively revealed over the years. And therefore, we believe that same faithfulness will continue to pull us forward, continue to pull us forward into the future. And it's on that faithfulness, it's on that assurance, pointed to in the incarnation, revealed in the incarnation, but that still carries us forward today. It's on that faithfulness and goodness and love that I think we can hope today as we face our own uncertainties and as we face our own questions, um, our own doubts, our own whatever, our own regrets. It's on that faithfulness that we can continue to hope and it's on that faithfulness that we celebrate um, in this Christmas season. So Merry Christmas.